welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. This is the Out of the Park podcast series from the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life, a program housed at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. We're glad to have you with us today. I'm Wes Avram, uh, hosting this podcast today with the Reverend David Wood, our special guest. Uh, David is here uh, in conversation with several people in different capacities at the Park Center, and we are talking today about his work on a project called From Relevance to Resonance in Congregational Ministry, Congregational Life. First, let me tell you a little bit about David, and uh, welcome. First, David, welcome here. Thank you, Wes. Good to be with you. David is the recently retired senior pastor of the Glencoe Union Church, north of Chicago. He has served uh, congregations cross-denominationally, actually, uh, Ordained American Baptist, he served American Baptist congregations, independent congregations, and Presbyterian churches, and international churches, uh, places far afield as Kentucky, Maine, Connecticut, and Paris, France. Along the way, he's also directed the transition into ministry program for the Lilly Endowment, has worked as associate director of the Louisville Institute, gathering pastors together for a conversation about things that matter and resourcing congregation, or excuse me, pastoral learning in congregations. He has worked uh, actively with Templeton Foundation and other groups, uh, encouraging and facilitating conversation around faith and science. And otherwise, David is just a person of the world interested in many things. One of those leads to this project, David, you've been working on with Andy Root, a professor at, Lew- at uh, excuse me, Luther Seminary in St. Paul, uh, called Relevance to Resonance. And you have Correct me on this, but you're working with uh, cohorts, interdenominational cohorts of pastors all around the country over a three-year period, or is it four? Four years. Four year, four years, to look carefully and slowly and in conversation with others on the some significant uh, social theories right now and how they impact congregational life and ministry in today's church. One of the people that you're particularly interested in with this group is uh, a German thinker named Hartmut Rosa and who's written on an idea of resonance as a way of thinking about uh, Western life today. Uh, Am I right on that, David? Yes. So Rosa is a key person or key uh, thinker in our our effort along with Charles Taylor, the philosopher Charles Taylor, and both Hartmarosa studied uh, with Charles Taylor, or at least studied, uh, did his dissertation on it, Taylor. So those are the two primary thinkers in our project. And your second, your partner in the project, Andy Root, also has a podcast in our Art of the Park podcast series that uh, Leah Quarles, one of the pastors at Pinnacle, hosted with Andy when he was here. And so I'm interested in kind of taking that conversation further with you, David. And first, let me ask about you and what drew you to the thinking of these two individuals. What was it in their writing, mm. uh, this Canadian and this German, both sociologists and philosophers of culture, what drew you to them as a way of thinking about congregational life today? Yeah, so let me start with Charles Taylor, who's most, well, the most recent largest book anyway, not most recent, but is called A Secular Age. And 
it was in my reading of his book that I found a kind of um, new way of framing the time we're living in. Hmm. And part of what Taylor does in that book is demonstrate that you can't define secularization as the irrelevancy of religion or faith or Christian or Christian faith, but faith period. He said that it makes no sense. What's what he effectively talks about is how it's not as if people no longer believe anymore. It's that the way people believe is what has changed dramatically. In other words, religion has not gone away. And I think now this is sort of a dominant consensus among right. philosophers, sociologists that you can't talk about a secular society as a non-religious society, but rather that religion now just takes so many different forms and and so there remains in the society, in our culture at large, an ongoing hunger and yearning for transcendence is the way he puts it. And and I think just in reading Taylor, I started to realize there there is uh, in the shortcomings, if you will, of late modern life, all kinds of possibilities for church life and congregations and lives of faith. Uh, it doesn't mean it's a it's an automatic thing or there's not it's not. It's not an occasion for a triumphalist view of uh, that churches should have, uh, that somehow they've got the answer. But it does mean that there's a lot in the culture right now that is causing young people or people in general to feel like there is something missing. There's a flatness to this life, even though we've achieved so much. We've gained so much uh, mm-hmm. control, if you will, over all kinds of things that would have previously been thought impossible. There, there's something in which people are feeling our lives are still lacking some uh, kind of substance, a kind of engagement. And Taylor does just a great job, I think, of sort of giving us a longer story of how that is and why that is the case. Is that the point where Hart, where Taylor and then Rosa make connection That's right. in terms of Rosa's understanding, using the term resonance as a way of describing fundamental experiences, but perhaps also a way of life in which the in which the world is allowed to speak to us, in right. which experience is given a quality um, of uh, a, a kind of valence of potentiality and possibility that opens the world rather than closes it down, uh, in which we can tolerate mystery in a new way, in which there's otherness in our life that's not threatening. Uh, is that is that transcendence? Well, I, I think that that begins to sort of I think sort of spill out a bit at least of what Taylor means when he talks about transcendence and the yearning. I think he he would say that the yearning for transcendence and, and even in the ways you were just talking about it is intrinsic to the human being. Uh, and so that, 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 that possibility always exists there. It doesn't mean that that cultures are always able to tap into that, but it does mean that it's an ongoing reality. And and again, we should mention that Taylor talks about living in relation to transcendence or within the what he calls the imminent frame. Mm-hmm. And when he talks about living within the imminent frame, which he says is sort of the standard way in which people live their lives, it, it, it is as if there is no sort of transcendence. So people are living uh, within a kind of construct in which there is no no sense of the transcendence is possible. Uh, and instead, it's sort of, they, they live within a much more of a, what we call a kind of closed 
universe. And yet, if there's something innate within us that desires transcendence, we try to there's all kinds of ways in which we're trying to get out of ourselves, That's right. be it through exactly. meditation or sexuality or uh, ex- excess behavior, excess sports, uh, all, or depression, where we turn inward in mm-hmm. ourselves. Where well, uh, accumulation of wealth becomes uh-huh. a major. <laughs> which we're continually trying to get beyond ourselves. Right. right. Maybe. Is that what that's about? Um, I, I wonder if... The well, let me let me put it this way. I I've known some now for several years who I I got to know at a time in which he was sort of in the midst of a significant kind of religious conversion experience. And as he described this experience, when he was beginning to grapple with the possibility of a living God, right? Who, however transcendent, had a claim on his life. Mm-hmm. When he would talk about a before and an after, and Part of it, he said, you know, before he was able to entertain that possibility, I asked him about that time, and I said, how did you live? How did you make meaning? How did you ask questions of what was true beyond what you could touch and feel uh, or the day-to-day needs of your life? And his response was, I didn't. His response was, I never thought about it. Mm-hmm. I never even asked the question. I just was doing. And what did he say, what brought about the... The shift then did he ever talk did you talk about that? I think he wouldn't have used this language, but it was unexplainable experiences of what scholars of religion called the numinous, you know unexplainable experiences of possibility of something that was mysterious, not frightening, not strange, but of a kind of community, a kind of way of asking questions, kind of engaging other people that he experienced with people who had faith mm-hmm. that he didn't experience anywhere else, and he just started asking questions. You mentioned resonance, and we'll talk a bit more about that. But in a way, if I'm hearing what you're saying, it's probably not too far afield from what Rosa would identify as resonance in terms of his experience. I think that's right. I think that's right. And But what was interesting is that he would talk as though he had never experienced it Many, many years mm-hmm. prior to that, it just never happened. Mm-hmm. He just was doing what he thought he was supposed to do to be a successful person and right. a happy person. Right. And there was no question beyond that until mm-hmm. suddenly there was a question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how does the church be there when there's, that happens? Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> Even, it's not as if the church has to make that happen. But is the church there when that does happen? Right, in terms of people's awareness, or call it awakening, whatever you want to call it, right? Or is the church both there, present physically and available, but is the church also open to that right. process? Yeah. How many of us in the church are still in that place where we're just doing? Let me come back to Rosa for a second and, and Taylor. What I think Rosa does is is sort of lay out for us the dynamics in the culture right now, which relate to the person you were just talking about, and how life is experienced within the imminent frame. Mm -hmm. And he talks about one of the dynamics he identifies, which he thinks is is kind of a a phenomenon that is experienced across the board in least least Western culture, is this experience of acceleration, that Mm -hmm. the pace of life is increasing, and that people are feeling this sense of always you know, expanding the the drive, if you will, the competition, the fear of being left behind and that sense that everything is moving faster and faster and, and that they have to somehow sort of 
get on board and, and, and they just get caught up in this sort of constant motion of running faster and faster just to stay in place. Yeah. And so many people have this experience of feeling, I'm not living the life I want to live. And yet I don't have any sense that there's an alternative way to go about living my life. And for, for Rosa, it is this experience of a certain kind of temporality, right? How we experience time that is indicative to what it means to, to live in, an, I'd say, in an imminent frame. Well, it was interesting. I thought in what you just said, one of the things that stood out to me was this question of never thinking that there's an alternative. Mm-hmm. Getting caught in a process you think is simply inevitable. In a culture that values choice. Mm. In a culture in which we're surrounded by messages right. that say we make ourselves. Yeah. We only have ourselves. Just do it. Um, be authentic. Be yourself. Be true to yourself. Find yourself. Be different. Mm-hmm. And yet, in the midst of it, we there's such a strain of, of feeling of inevitability and being hemmed into a process in which there's no alternatives. I have no choice. I have to, I, there's, I, I don't have agency in a world in which it right. says you're nobody unless you have agency. There's the double bind of the imminent frame, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Experience transcendence, I can't. Experience transcendence, I can't. And how do we open that question up without blaming the person caught up in it? Right. What does it mean for people, let's go back to your friend, what does it mean for them to have encounters or occasion where they begin to see their life as not necessary. In other words, there's other possibilities, mm-hmm. or at least there is the possibility of other possibilities mm-hmm. that, that they could actually um, engage. Uh, and what is it, what is required, what are the conditions, let's put it that way, that really could could encourage that or, or make that more likely. Any thoughts on that? Surely there are, there are a set of social conditions necessary mm-hmm. that would make it possible for us to live our lives in between things. Economists, you know, you must used to call it a social safety net. Mm-hmm. Some truth to that. I think that there's some sense in which there are places in our society where there aren't the structures of community that allow us to move through difficult periods, whether they're periods of pain or illness mm-hmm. or periods of vocational dislocation and wandering, whether we fall through the cracks. We fall down to the mm-hmm. space of being solely and entirely on our own. And the fear of that keeps us moving, mm-hmm. keeps us mm-hmm. constantly accumulating, constantly creating, constantly trying to basically pay the bills, right? Because we're on For our modern own. life. Thoroughly on our own. Thoroughly on our own. Mm-hmm. And we've increasingly created a society in which we value that, mm-hmm. and yet many fall through the cracks. So allow some people to soar, and uh, and the, but the middle falls out. So you're either doing really badly or doing really well. Mm-hmm. And there aren't the structures that make it possible for a living life in the middle. I don't want to exaggerate that, but I think there's a dimension of that. My, mm-hmm. my You know, my wife, Lynn, she works in the public schools uh, as a high school nurse, and she sees that all the time, the level in which kids are doing either doing extremely well or doing extremely poorly. And you wonder about where that middle mm-hmm. happens, where you know, youth and adults just sort of make life uh, without life collapsing around them. And the question is, are people feeling increasingly that they, they don't have the capacity to pull that off, right? right. That, that there's a kind of exhaustion that's setting in, um, 
to, I think in a way, that the culture as a whole, this may sound way too, what's the word, too, uh, too much of a, a reach here, but it feels like the culture itself is straining. It, mm-hmm. It's being stretched and and to the breaking point. Um, and most people are feeling that they we're, we're close to some kind of breaking point. And I, I, I just think that, that we... You know that that that's not a. We come to think of that as kind of normal, right? That we feel that way, but but it does it portend a a crisis that mm-hmm. is potentially a turning point in some way, um, or is that just too far reached to consider that? If we live in a culture in which that crisis is shaped by a kind of pervasive experience of anxiety, mm-hmm. the one thing that anxiety produces is lack of direction. Fear is directed. I fear something. Mm-hmm. Anxiety is multidirectional. I'm just anxious. Okay. And we can be anxious about, but generally anxiety, I think, is is we're just anxious. We're just nervous. We lose, we have a f- sense of foreboding. We have a sense of uh, fragility mm-hmm. and the fragilization of culture and the acceleration of culture. Uh, and with that sense of foreboding, that sense of fragility, we lose connection because we have less confidence in relationship. We mm-hmm. have less confidence in um, in even in recognizing that we're going to see the same people one day to the next. I think about that even economically, that we are moving so quickly in our in our employment mm-hmm. now that you can't count on anyone being in the same kind of position a certain time later. So there's a sense in which there's no stability in the culture around that allows you to take a journey. So we're just constantly, everyone is moving all the time. Yeah, let me let me bring in my experience of one of my sons. And I was talking to him the other day. He's just taken a new job in his field. He's in the field of data visualization. And this is the third job he's had in about five years. And he's not been fired. I mean, he's just sort of, moving from place to place and I mm-hmm. said you you just assume now right that this is a maybe two or three year thing and mm-hmm. oh yeah no and you know that this is a I mean it's such a contrast to to just a couple of generations ago where there was a kind of longevity or continuity a kind of um, we call it stability um, uh, and, and almost a sense of, that one was going to find a niche and just sort of live through that, live that out, and that simply is that there's that's not happening, and it's not there's no going back. It seems to me it's mm-hmm. like this is becoming just a common way, and it's not my son's not especially restless. It's like he sees this as necessary for his own improvement mm-hmm. and continued development. That you don't stay too long with one place, one company, or one type of job even. Yeah, and my I have two sons uh, in their mid and late twenties who are thoroughly wrapped up in and just take for granted what's called the gig economy. That mm-hmm. they're just always moving, always changing. Things mm-hmm. will they're they're um, they're on their own. Yeah, uh, and they don't trust institutions to support them. They're just on their own, and they'll do this and they'll do that and they'll do the other thing and try try another thing and and um, and shape a vocation while doing that. It's. Uh, I know that there's always been people like that. It's more pervasive now. 
there's always been experiences along those lines. There's always, I mean, good grief. You know, the immigrant people picked up and moved all the way across the world to start a new life yeah. at different times. Uh, the, but somehow the dislocation or the immigrant experience somehow still feels different mm -hmm. than this kind of gig life experience. Because it's not just gig economy, it's gig experience, it's gig convictions. Mm -hmm. it's, it's Everything is gigged, you know, our, our, our relationships, our convictions, our desires, our hopes, our sense of self, we're always recreating, recreating, and recreating. Uh, and that's a vision of human freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can have fun analyzing that. But I wonder what is the word of hope within that? Mm. You know, where does, if it's resonance, if it's transcendence, if it's community, you know, all these words that get attention these days, how does the church think about those words and those experiences and and offer an antidote, if you right. would, to these? So let's come back to resonance then and say a bit more about what we, what certainly Rosa means by that concept and its its meaning and and um, and how it presents itself in our lives. And so let's say we should maybe summarize these four characteristics or qualities that mm -hmm. that name or identify a resonant experience or encounter in one's life. And he, he, I'll just talk about them briefly. And the first one is what he calls um, affection, which is being affected. We, we feel touched, we feel moved by something or someone beyond ourselves that we encounter. And in that encounter, there is a, a sense of almost being called out of oneself or drawn out of oneself. Mm -hmm. And the, the second movement is, is he calls emotion, which he identifies as the way in which we find ourselves responding. There's a response that happens that we don't really control, but it is us nonetheless reverberating that's sort of that notion of a mutual sort of response to that call and answer in a way somehow we're answering that experience that we're having in relation to this this impact this effect by someone or something else outside of ourselves and uh and then and he talks about how that is almost oftentimes a bodily component to it um, that overtakes us, and then thirdly is is the experience of transformation that in some way we are changed by these mm -hmm. experiences, and so they never just sort of pass entirely through us, they remain with us and within us and and because of them we we, we come to see ourselves, the world around us uh, differently in some way or another, and the fourth one is that they 're elusive, meaning we can 't control them we we can 't predict them we can 't bottle them up or save them or store them away and they take us that's why what it means by they take us by surprise so these are the sort of yeah. four qualities and it's not to say that we go through these stages one two three four in in a uh in a in a resonant experience but rather they they sort of all happen simultaneously and, and only later can you sort of pass them out and see how all these things were present in that encounter which may be Sort of instantaneous, or it may last for a time. But these these moments, they're they're typically moments in time that we look back on, and and that we we realize something within ourselves, as well as something in relation to the world outside of ourselves. And so it it comes over against the notion of a, of an isolated, authentic self that doesn't need something outside of itself. Right. 
That's that's a key piece of this, I think. That there is a sense in which we are made by these experiences. Yes. As much as we create conditions for them, but we don't make them, we're made by them. That's right. But not in a way in which we're subsumed, because you can say no. you can be subsumed by a delusion. Right. right. You can be caught up in something which is not connected to reality. Right. Um, whether and it's, it's, and it's chemically not, induced or politically induced, right? Right. And it's not an echo of oneself, right? right. It, it always involves some, some, something, again, or someone outside of ourselves. So. Well, of course, those four aspects of a resonant experience that you describe also would conform or be an analogy to ways in which God has traditionally That's been right. described in the Christian tradition. That's right. All four of those could be described both to human experience as an analogy to religious experience, mm -hmm. also as an analogy to the person and character of God yes. mediating all of that, right? Uh, you could also describe Jesus through all of those four. And that's that's why it's so theologically suggestive mm -hmm. and, and helps, I think, people of faith, for instance, to sort of put a name and articulation to what what is so central to to the um, the experience of faith in this life. But I'd like to think of these experiences of resonance, as you describe it, or transcendence, mm -hmm. as not only or simply something that we experience as individuals. Right. Like, oh, my God, I, I like to walk. I like, I'd rather walk in nature than meet with people because in nature is my church. Right. Well, that's a beautiful thought uh, and true in, in some experiences. And yet that resonant experience can also be experienced in community. And maybe in community we create the structures mm -hmm. whereby resonance is experienced with others. Sometimes I don't know the otherness of nature until I experience the otherness of another person. That's right. So Rosa talks about the importance of institutional structures mm -hmm. that create, uh, he calls them zones of resonance. But again, this is sort of okay. the guarantee of resonance, but the conditions, come back to that, right? The, and and mm -hmm. institutions have a way of, of establishing these conditions over time and making them more, uh, well, not predictable, but more likely. And I've always thought this this provides a, a way of thinking about the church in relation to resonance, that it, it becomes a place where people experience resonance, are more likely, I should say, to experience resonance. And at the same time, if churches are places where resonant experience is absent, uh, that's, that's also uh, you know, a sort of death knell for the life of the church. So what, um, do you, what would you think? As an observer of church life and participant and leader of church mm -hmm. life, what are mm -hmm. the three questions? Now, I'll let there be two or four, but I'm going to go for three. What mm -hmm. are the three questions a congregation needs to ask itself or its leadership group needs to ask each other hmm. uh, about to help them understand whether they are an institution that is open to and cultivating the possibility of resonance in this way or not? Can you think of three? Well, maybe one might be immediately to my eyes. How important do we think this is to our life as a church, i.e., resonance? How important do we think this is? Um, how how do we see? How often do we hear people talking about their encounter, their experience in the life of our congregation in ways that would suggest? The, the sort of presence of resonance there. Does that make sense? Sure. 
But it, even if we didn't have the idea of resonance itself, okay, and what questions would we ask ourselves in order to back into it, in order to be mm-hmm. a place where we value resonance? Uh, do we have rules about what we do every week that can never be? Are we flexible? Yeah. Okay. Are we attentive to individuals? Do we are encourage we, uh, vulnerability? Do we encourage vulnerability? Okay. That's, that that may be one. Vulnerability. Do we care for those in need? Mm-hmm. Are we patient with conflict? Are we open to children? Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's an indicator. Is there room within how we do church that allows for an improvisation, spontaneity, mm-hmm. Uh, maybe spontaneity is a key term here. Rosa talks about spontaneity, um, and a kind of openness, receptivity is, is another major. Is worship the center of life or programs? Right. Is yes. Worship being a place where we could have the potential of an extraordinary experience of the ordinary. Hmm. Right. right. Uh, resonance. Is that a reasonable expectation that people would have that the, of the possibility of experience of resonance in, in, in the context of how we do worship. Mm-hmm. That, again, that's not turning to some mechanical thing, but it, it is a reasonable question to ask. Is there something about the way we do worship that either cultivates the likelihood of resonance or works in the opposite direction? I'm going to stop us right there with that poignant question. Hoping and living with a resonant hope that maybe one day we can pick it up again in another podcast. Sounds good. Thanks, Wes. But thanks so much. This is provocative and helpful and really appreciate it. David Wood, uh, today on the Out of the Park podcast series, please come back as often as you can to these series and uh, pick up the ones you haven't heard and listen and wait for the ones to come. And we will help you on your journey with the Out of the Park podcast series from the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org.